And it always has to begin here. Always. And so, here's kind of the bad cop thing. I wanted to share some things with you that Bishop Bates, and I've kind of modified a few of them and, and put my own thoughts in there, but Bishop Bates began talking about that we are no longer in the postmodern age. Now, I kind of grew up in the postmodern age. Most of us did. But he talked about the idea that today there is actually a whole new set of values. In fact, there's a new truth. A truth that for many of us probably seems foreign. And I will have to tell you that the first night that I was there and he talked about some of these things, I left kind of prideful. Yeah, you know, those millennials, those, those young people, they just really missed it. But then the Lord spoke to me and said, yes, but you're the one that taught them. And your parents taught you. And I thought about my own childhood and my own upbringing, and I realized I grew up in the church. My mom took us to church most Sundays. Sadly, my dad had kind of had his fill of the church, and that's a whole other story. But the reality of it is we didn't talk about the Lord around the table. My parents didn't pray over us. Church was something you did. That was how, one of the ways that you were a good citizen. You, you did your time. And so these new truths that we see arising in our culture began with us. It began with our parents. And it has become what Bishop Bates calls the heresy of self-fulfillment. And I'm going to tell you, if you're not uncomfortable by a little, made uncomfortable by a little bit of this, then uh, please take this into prayer. Churches today are more comfortable preaching how to be debt-free and how to have a happy marriage than they are repentance. In this heresy of self-fulfillment, there is a new set of rules, a new set of truths, and I'm going to go over a few of them. The first one is to find yourself, look into yourself. Now, if anyone studied world religions at all, that's a very Buddhist concept. But many, many people believe that today. That if the most important thing in the world, the most important thing in life is to find yourself. And the way that you find yourself is to look into yourself. Find out who you really are. Secondly, feelings are truth. However you feel, that is the truth. Third, it is never, never acceptable to criticize another person's life choices. And so even within the church, and we were, uh, Deacon Dan and I were having a conversation before, even within the church, we simply can't say to a brother or sister, hey, I, I see what's going on in your life. Is that where God is calling you? Can I pray with you? Can I stand with you? Because that doesn't seem to me to match what God's word says. Fourth, the most important thing in life is to obtain what you desire. 
and fifth is connected directly to that. The highest goal, therefore, is happiness. <coughs> College is the way to happiness. I'm going to tell you right now, I grew up in a time where my parents told us that the reason they worked as hard as they did and they did all of the things that they did was so we could have a better life. And the way that you had a better life was to go to college. What they really meant was so that you could have more stuff. So that you didn't have to struggle maybe financially the way that they struggled and so forth. Number six, believe anything you want. Just don't bring it into the marketplace. Religion is a private matter in our culture. In fact, it is no longer the freedom of religion. It is the freedom from religion that we treasure. Parents, this new set of truths says that you are to teach your children to base all of their decisions on what is best for them. And finally, diversity and tolerance must be absolute. No culture or set of ideals is any better than another. And the sad thing is, in studies that have been done by the Barna Research um, Organization, about 60% of born-again Christians today believe those truths. Maybe not all of them, but certainly some of them. And so I began to wonder how is it we've missed the boat? And secondly, how do we get back? We've heard a lot of talk and there's been a lot of prayer for revival in the church. But what is revival? Well, from a medical standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, revival is to bring, breathe life back into something, right? right? To revive it from really the brink of death, right? So when you perform CPR, right, you're reviving, you're breathing, literally breathing life where someone can't breathe for themselves. And so revival is not so much about the way the church looks maybe in the way that it worships or its music and all of the things that sometimes I think we equate with revival. Revival is about life. Yeah. It is about asking God to breathe new life into the church, to revive us once again the things that the church has stood for and has been historically. And so I went back in history, way back, all the way back to the Roman Empire. And this morning I want to spend a few minutes before I ask Ben and Steve to share some things about the Roman Empire. Now, we are in Romans, chapter 1. And towards the end of chapter 1, Paul begins to say some things. Now remember, Paul is writing to the Roman church in the first century. It's very, very different than the church today. This would have been a church really of misfits, right? They were not a part of the culture. In fact, they would have felt very, very uncomfortable in the Roman culture. And Paul begins to tell them some things. First of 
Paul, he says that God has revealed himself in all of creation, yet they have rejected him. Now, my first thought is, well, Paul's talking to them, and he's kind of warning them, hey, this is the culture in. But that's really not at all what Paul's doing. Paul is actually saying, you, you were just like that. You have rejected God, even though he's revealed himself. And Paul goes on to say that God has given them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to shameful lust and a depraved mind. Now we like to think that at this time the church was already being persecuted. The emperor at the time that Paul wrote this would have been a guy by the name of Nero Claudius Caesar. Uh, we know him as Nero, and Nero did become a despotic tyrant. However, the first five years of his rule, actually many, many good things were going on in the Roman culture. Taxes had been reduced. You like that, right? There was a reduction of government control and restrictions. That's a good one. Capital punishment, such as crucifixion, had been outlawed. And the games, right? The gladiatorial games had actually lessened had lost its prominence in Roman society. But Paul seemed to know that this would not always be the case. Because as humans, we're fallen. And our tendency is sometimes to move back towards that which enslaved us. The historian Robert Weber wrote this of the Roman society. Roman society was marked by moral decadence, premarital and extramarital sex, homosexuality, sex as a cult act of worship. Think about, uh, you've ever watched like the MTV Awards? Wow. There was no universally accepted absolutes concerning marriage, adultery, abortion, Self-interest was the only guide. Does that sound familiar? This was because there were no absolute ideas. Relativism was the rule of the day with numerous philosophies competing for prominence. Finally, religious pluralism in which numerous gods were worshipped in public festivals, mystery cults, special rites, and even witchcraft were rampant. After Emperor Augustus ushered in a long period of peace and prosperity, the one religious absolute became swearing allegiance to the Roman emperor as a god. Now being Christian in this time was a very, very different thing. Being a Christ follower in Rome was the antithesis of the culture of the day. Christians in Roman times were most commonly slaves, servants, some of them might have been craftsmen, and a few were merchants. And believe it or not, merchants weren't considered a good thing back then. Probably because most of them were dishonest. <laughs> Christians did not have a political voice in Roman society. There was no Christian coalition to champion their ideas before the emperor. They were the unknown. 
And last, they were being accused of something. They were men and women who had simply come to realize that the way that they had lived before, the things that they had believed, the things that they had done, and the culture they lived in were bankrupt. They were bankrupt. They had repented. What a concept. And they realized that they simply could not live the way that they had or the way that the culture around them was living if they belonged to Christ. Justin Martyr, if you've ever heard of that name, Justin Martyr lived around 100 to 165, or AD 100 to 165. So he would have lived towards the end of this period when persecutions began to really mount against the church. Okay? The church began to be accused of being this subversive organization because they did not bow to Caesar. Justin Martyr was beheaded. One of the things that Justin Martyr did before he died was to write a letter to the emperor. We now know it as the first apology. Justin Martyr was considered like kind of the first apologist to Christianity. And this is what he wrote. Those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. Those who made use of magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. Now that's all pretty easy for us. Most of us don't do a lot of idol worship. Hopefully most of us aren't into reading tarot cards and the magic arts. But it's going to get uncomfortable pretty quick. We, who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth, and property now bring what we have into a common fund and share with anyone we who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs now after the manifestation of Christ live together and pray for our enemies and try to persuade those who unjustly hate us so that they, living according to the fair commands of Christ, may share with us the good hope of receiving the same things we will from the God and Master of all. Their faith had changed their worldview. They realized that to be a Christian meant to be different. Christians in the Roman world found themselves in a culture setting of moral decadence, philosophical relativism, and religious pluralism. Not too different than the culture we find ourselves in today. However, they told the story of life from a very different view. They did not accommodate their faith to the culture, but set forth the faith in a countercultural way. In a world that had no set beliefs, they proclaimed, we believe. In a world that had no ethic, they proclaimed, we behave. And in a world where there was no belonging, they declared, we belong. And you know what? God used them to change the world. 
It was because of the things that they said and knew and stood for that we now enjoy what we call Western civilization. It was those truths that began to transform the society. Sometimes in leaps and bounds, sometimes it was a crawl. In this morning's gospel, if you remember last Sunday, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 12, if you remember around verse 13 last week, that Jesus speaks to the crowds in the parable of the rich fool. You know, the guy that stored up and did all of the stuff so he could kind of kick back and he would have it great and do this wonderful thing. And if you remember, they kind of try and drag Jesus into this by asking this question about inheritance and so forth. And now as we look at verse 22, Jesus now pulls his disciples aside. And so they're in private now. And he begins to teach them even the deeper truth. And he says to them, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about how you're going to get the stuff. Don't worry about how you're going to be clothed and fed and all of those things. For God knows what you need. Let's seek what first? His kingdom. The kingdom of God. Do not set your hearts on the things that the pagan world runs after, he says. Seek his kingdom. Seek something different and you will be different. And so when you find yourself in that university or even that high school class, even in that middle school class, ask yourself, am I seeking something different or am I just seeking after the same thing everyone else in this world is seeking after? And as parents and teachers, when we talk to our children, when we talk to them about getting into the right college so that they can have more stuff, you hear Father Mark say often that we should want our ceiling to be our children's floor. For me, that just is a reminder of how short I've fallen. You see, I believed all of that stuff, right? I chased after all of those things. How many of us have chased after wealth and maybe even fame and popularity when God was always calling us to something different, to seek first his kingdom? And then Jesus says those very cutting words. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. In 410 AD, the Visigoths invaded Rome, and the Roman Empire began to crumble. And as the Roman Empire crumbled, Christians provided the only stability, and oftentimes ministered to the dead and the dying, to the sick and the suffering as all of society began to collapse. I mean, we think of the simple things. I know Fairfield a few months back went through a period where they didn't pick up trash, right? How bad does that get? Like really quick if your trash isn't picked up. So think about an entire society, entire structure literally collapsing. No protection of the law. 
That's been a big issue lately. That's right. Things like trash, all of the things that we expected fell apart. And Christians were the few people oftentimes that would even remain in the cities to take care of and to tend the sick and the people that couldn't escape. In sheer and utter chaos. Christians became a countercultural community which resulted in a radical break with the pagan way of life which said, me first. It's all about me. Christians were taught to live in moral purity, to be faithful in marriage, to esteem life in the womb, and to preserve the lives of the children who were often abandoned in the streets. They became servants to all, regardless of race or creed. They narrated a life that imitated the life of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it cost them everything, even their life. C.S. Lewis once said that he did not think God was so concerned with how long we live as much as he was with how we live. And so I close with this. Christian truths are counter to the truths of our culture today. To be a Christian means you believe that truth can be found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Period. It means that you believe your feelings are real, but they're not true. It means that loving someone does not mean simply shutting up. It means that joy, true joy, not happiness, not self-fulfillment, but joy is found in giving oneself to others. It means that the highest goal in life is giving glory to God. It means that every belief impacts the marketplace. It means that there is a purpose, a God-given and defined purpose for our sexuality, and that there are boundaries. And foremost, it means that Jesus is Lord of all. Robert Weber writes, in the Incarnation, Jesus demonstrated what life looks like for a human being who is in full communion with God. And guess what? He is inviting us into his life. The church is the witness. It is our songs. It is our worship. It is our speech. It is our preaching. It is our spirituality. It is our relationships, our works of love, our missions. You have 30 minutes, so we're going to let you guys out of here. I think we're now on 115. So, yeah. um,
Yeah, if you brought your Bibles, you can look. I'm just going to give a short word from Matthew 5 today. Um, like Father Bill, um, this summer for me was a time of darkness is a really good metaphor, um, how I felt. Uh, people have asked, you know, I'm an educator, so I kind of get two months that are at a different pace than the rest of life. And so people say, like, how was your summer? You know, how, how are you doing? And I said, well, it kind of depends on, on what you mean. Like, it was nice to have a slower pace of life and be with my family. Um, but as Father Bill said, we had a lot of rough stuff happen this summer. Uh, if you're checking the news and um, the, the slayings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile really bothered me at a very deep level, the, the shootings of the police officers days later. There's moments in life for me where I think Christian cliché and these pat answers just really don't suffice any longer. And uh, for me, I was in a pretty good spiritual quagmire for about four weeks, maybe maybe longer, and really began to wrestle kind of what is hope, where do we find hope, what do we turn to, and just the, the, the standard kind of Christian answers and the basic theology seem to fall short. And so when you, when you think about darkness for a minute, what, what ultimately defeats darkness? What is it? It's, it's light, right? It's really about, it's about that simple. And so I began to, to think about where is light in my life? Where do I find light? And um, when you look at the word of God, I mean, it really starts with light, right? What is the very first words uttered from God's mouth? It's what? It's, it's let there be light, right? Prior to that, it says that the earth was formless and void, and it says it was in darkness. It says actually dwelt upon the face of the deep. Now, if there's any metaphysicist in the house who can try to explain exactly what that means and what was going on. But God said, let there be light, and then there was. And light became a solution to the darkness. It was from that point on that God began to initiate the entire process of creation and I'm, I'm a writer, I like metaphors, I like pictures. I really picture like God was walking into his workshop or his, his art studio and he's clicking on the light so he can get to work, right? <laughs> and the darkness shoes away and is gone and then he gets to work. And so light always, always precedes life. It does, right? There's a few nasty things like black mold and some algaes that can grow in the dark and those really weird fish that are way down in the ocean at that little... Those nasty teeth and that little bubble thing. Those are the only things I know that can live in my perfect darkness, right? Um, outside of that, everything else requires some form of light. Well, then you look at the beginning of the Gospels, right? In John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the light of the world. It's capital L. He is the light of the world. And if you look back, if you open your Bibles, if you look back at Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus is really getting into his intense ministry here, it says in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And check this out. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is an amazing image here. It's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 that Matthew is bringing to our attention. But, you know, if those of you who have little children, um, if you ever have a power outage uh, during a thunderstorm and everything goes out, the night lights and the fans turn off and the sound machines, it's usually a moment of panic. Sometimes even we as adults begin to panic. But, but imagine dwelling in darkness. Okay. Have you ever been lost in the dark and you can't find your phone or your candle or your flashlight? It's terrifying. Darkness is terrifying. 
And, and, and Isaiah and then Matthew are painting for us a picture of absolute spiritual darkness and, and people. The people are dwelling, it says, in a valley of death. If you look at the culture around us, as, as Father Bill just shared, and during Roman times and today, does it feel like that? As you look out upon the landscape of America and around the world, do you, do you sense a darkness beginning to crowd in around us and upon us? I certainly do. Um, so when you think about Jesus and he's shining this light, this light that was dawning at that particular time, I want us to think about two things and consider them for a moment. One is that he was shining in eternal light by reconciling fallen humanity to God. Right? Through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he has established that and he came to do that so that our eyes might be open, divinely open to his truth, that the relationship that was once shattered with blindness has now been given sight, and that we can have a relationship with him again. But I want to ask you the second thing. Was Jesus interested at all in temporal darkness, the darkness of this particular life? I believe wholeheartedly he was. So let me give you some examples of this. Uh, having poor health, having leprosy at that particular time was a form of darkness. And Jesus was like, I got, I got something for that. I'm a solution to that. Let me touch you and drive that back. There were grouchy and angry crowds that had been listening for days. Like, we would just like something to eat. He's like, you know, I've got something for that, too. Watch this. I'm going to multiply fish and loaves. I'm going to feed you to your soul full. I'm going to collect baskets of leftovers. He found marginalized women. And he stood between them and an angry crowd that wanted to stone one woman. And there was another woman that no Jew would ever talk to. He was like, I'm going to give you my whole afternoon, and we're going to hang out. I'm going to demonstrate to people that you matter. Right? He's showing light wherever he's going. He's a solution. So he's, he's demonstrated that this life, there's light for that as well. It's not just as, hey, God's got something for you on the other side of this veil. Things will be good up there in heaven. See you later. He could have done that. But he, he demonstrated again and again that he had good light to shine in this life as well. So this brings us to the text that I want to camp on for just a few more minutes. And then I'll, I'll let Steve come up. This is uh, our theme scripture at Restoration Academy this year. This is Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, a very, very familiar text. But Jesus is saying this to us. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, when, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, hopefully everybody knows that text, has heard that text before. A couple of real simple observations. One, right off the bat, Jesus is telling us who we are and not what we're supposed to do. Okay, sometimes the church struggles with identity crisis. We're so busy getting caught up. How do I live right? How do I do this? How do I dress this? And Jesus is saying, this is what you are. You are the light of the world. That's a tremendous privilege, because when you think about that, he is the light of the world, capital L. He is ascended into heaven. He's saying, now you are. It's also a tremendous responsibility. What happens when the church's light goes out? Okay. What happens when we lose our authenticity, when we lose our presence, when we become a dysfunctional body? What happens to the prevailing darkness of this fallen world? Right. Exactly. It's, just, it's like a candle. Right. He's saying, you are the light of the world. The other thing that we see in this is that he is saying, the, the, the Greek here, he's addressing his disciples, he addressed, he's addressing the crowd, he's saying, y'all are the light of the world. We as a community are the light of the world. There's that little nursery song, this little light mine song, you know, that's really cute, but it's not just me. Yes, I am a light, but we are a really bright light. 
we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden at night. It's like it's very noticeable and it's obvious. And then it says that this light is for the benefit of everybody around us. Right? He says no one takes that light and they put it under a bowl, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. So the light that we shine is for the benefit of this fallen world. And it's obvious. No one says, like, is that light? I don't, I don't know what that is. Like, light is always in stark contrast to darkness. You can see it. You know what it is. It's very obvious. And it provides illumination for people that are without it. And then the last thing he says here is he says, in that same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And then glorify your Father who is in heaven. And sometimes we get hung up on good works. But the Greek for that, guys, is a beautiful phrase. It's blessed deeds. I love that. It's blessed deeds. And he says that when people see them, this is just imagine this for a moment. These deeds are so beautiful that when people see them, including unbelievers, they have no desire to pat you on the back. They want to praise God instead. That's how transcendent those deeds are. And so, you know, when you see Jesus, when Jesus, again, was operating and, and moving about while he was on earth, ultimately people were, he would say, I hope that these works will cause people to glorify my Father who is in heaven. And so what do we mean when we see blessed deeds? And we could preach a whole sermon on that, and I will not do that. But it's basically just living out the life of Jesus. It's living out his footsteps. It's vocalizing his message. It's practicing his presence wherever we go. So just a few examples of that, and, and Father Bill did a great job talking about that. Truth is light. Truth is light. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. Key word there is seems. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Do we understand that people that don't know Jesus are spiritually blind? Okay. Uh, I love Lecrae. I love his music. I may have shared this before. If you don't know who that is, it's a fantastic hip-hop artist. But he was speaking one time at a concert. He said, you know, he said, if a blind man got onto a bus with you, and you knew he was blind, and he stepped on your foot really hard and crushed up your toes, would you shove him away? Would you yell at him? Would you be ugly to him? He said, no one would do that. He said, but why do we act so shocked when unbelievers act like unbelievers? Why do we get so offended when they act that way? Paul goes to great lengths to say, you were just like that prior to being regenerated in Jesus. Truth is a gift to us through the Holy Spirit, through his word, where the psalmist said that his feet is what? A light into our path and a lamp into our feet. Apart from that, we are walking in blindness. Right? And the illustration of that lamp in Psalm is it's just enough light for the very next step. We're in a dark world. It's enough illumination for the next step. But if you were lost in spiritual darkness, we should be lamenting with those people, not hating them, not, not going against the truth is light. Unity is light. Walking in unity with people of different colors, creeds, backgrounds. Jesus said in John uh, 17, he said, when he's praying a high priestly prayer, he said, the world is going to know that you sent me to the degree that my people are united. And listen, there's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of tension right now, a lot of political back and forths, right? But one thing that text makes clear is that if we're going to change the world, we're going to do it together. We're going to do it together, and it's going to be tough, and there's going to be a lot of ups and downs and speed bumps, but we're going to do it together. Reconciliation is truth. Asking for, it was like, excuse me, it's asking for forgiveness, seeking repentance, lamenting with people that are hurting. Compassion is light. Um, but just practicing the presence of Jesus wherever we go. You and I 
and God's mysterious, overwhelming optimism are the solution to this broken world. And I, I dropped the term on our staff this week. I said, we're solutionaries. Okay, I heard that term for the first time this summer from my friend, Show Baraka. A solutionary is someone who sees what's broken and fallen in any cultural context and says, by God's grace, I'm going to be a solution to that. Okay? We are the answer to that. A lot of us are outsourcing our, our trust to other arenas to fight these battles and to change the world. But as God said in the Word, He said, only the church is going to overcome and kick in the gates of hell. That's right. That's you yeah. and me. All right? Yeah, I think we should get engaged in politics, but that's not the answer. That's not the answer. Government reform is important. That's not the answer. It's practicing the daily presence of Jesus no. wherever we go. So for you young people go back to school, that's you are right. a solutionary. For those of us who go to work tomorrow morning, we are a solutionary. For those of us who are engaged in any type of work, we are a solutionary. We shine light wherever God has sent us. Amen? Well, as I look out, I see a lot of former students. Caleb, some still at Restoration Academy, Noah and Nathaniel, uh, Justinian. And, uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by that because, you know, the, <clears throat> what it says about college students is that 80-85% don't go back to church. They mm -hmm. leave and they don't go back. But, uh, and I'm sure it was hard for you to get here. I'm sure it was a struggle for some of you, right? And you're, you're at a point now where you have a choice to make. And it's a struggle because it is, it is a war between dark and light. Okay? And the evil one would love to keep you out of church okay? because this is a place of light. Okay? Uh, 1 John says that if we walk in the light, and Ben's speaking about the light, we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus covers us from all sin. Amen. So there's a correlation you've, between the blood of Jesus covering us and walking in the light and having fellowship with fellow Christians. you got to do both. Okay? So it's there's there is definitely spiritual things happening in church. We had uh, Linda Chandler and others. He was Barb saying they saw angels in here last week. Okay, we believe by faith that this is this is occurring. Okay, so we must walk in the light. So I'm thankful uh, that I get a, a platform at Restoration Academy to be able to share the gospel. I taught for 13 years in Birmingham City, and uh, we, you know you're forbidden in the public schools to open up the Bible. But uh, so when I went to RA, I said you know I made a, a vow. I said thank you, Lord. I'm going to share a scripture every day. Right. And that's what I do every day because I want them to, because this word is living and breathing and active and they Amen. need it in them. There's right. nothing else that is going to sustain them and that is going to uh, empower them uh, in this dark age that we're in. And so, uh, and so one scripture, and this is kind of like practical, biblical application for what Father Bill been speaking of. But in uh, this verse that we're all very familiar with, 2 Corinthians and 10.5, uh, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension 
that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once our obedience is complete. So this applies to youth, but it also applies to every one of us in here. Okay? The, the evil one, has uh, he has launched an assault against the minds of everyone. Okay? This is why we see what we see. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. So we are in a battle, not only for our own minds, but for the minds of others. We've got to storm the gates of hell, as Ben mentioned. Okay? And that's the minds of people. And tear down these strongholds. Okay? We do it by proclaiming the word, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. And light comes forth when we do that. So... That, that is what we're, we're going to have to understand. This is really what we're up against. It used to be when you taught that kids were uh, just we, uh, in, with broken families and uh, drugs, of course, you know, and that's still there. But now we have this cyberspace, this social media that is, uh, and, and I was just thinking this last night. I said to Bridget, I said, the prince is the principalities and the powers of the air is what it's mentioned in the Bible. And that's the airwaves that are coming through. Okay? And we've got to we've got to not only fight with this word, but we we got to take control of the airwaves. However, we can do that as Christians, as a whole, as a church. Uh, and so this is this is really truly what everyone is up against. Um, in 1 Peter, another verse that, that uh, has been resounding within me is that uh, we must abstain from sinful desires that war against our soul. Okay, we're in a war for our souls. Okay, and what is our soul? Our soul is our, our mind, our will, our emotions. Okay, what I think, what I want, how I feel. <laughs> So whatever's happening with whatever you think, whatever you want, how you're feeling, if that's out of kilter, it's because we're, we're in a battle. Okay? And those who we come in contact with are in a battle. So it's time to, to take this, to take the word for what it is and apply it. Okay? And to really to end on a, on a victorious note, 2 Corinthians 2.14. I think we should all have this in our hearts. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. Who always leads us in triumph. Not sometimes. Always leads us in triumph. Where do you get that from? Because Jesus, what he did at the cross... Okay, he, he stripped the rulers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them. Okay, 2 Corinthians 15. Okay, so we are we have the victory. Let's get it straight. Okay, always and where do we spread that fragrance? 
every place, everywhere we go, we're the fragrance, we're the light, we're the salt. Okay, and it may not, and, and it may not seem like a big deal, but it is. You may feel like you're not making a difference. That's a lie. You are. Okay. So, thank God. Thank God. Amen. Amen. Stand up if you are a parent.